0: Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt.
0: We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships.
1: If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place.
0: Here we go. Sherry, I'm going to dive right into the listener question today. How dare you assume you view marriage as more sacred and committed than me because mine didn't survive alcoholism. Wow. Wow.
1: I didn't realize that lately we had been giving that vibe.
0: That is not a lately question. That is a question that one of our panelists today asked me a couple of years ago when you were first on the podcast and when our intent our kind of stated goal for this work that we were starting on was to help people recover their marriages from alcoholism. And I think I had said at some point on the podcast, you know, one of the reasons we survived is because we just wanted it more than other people. And I was corrected and it has literally changed our, our mission Mm -hmm. from trying to help people recover their, marriages from alcoholism to trying to help individuals make the right choices, find their own path and make the decision that's right for them. And I can't tell you, Melissa, how thankful I am that you asked us that question. It was bold. It was a bit brash, but it was, you know, what we've come to know you to be, um, that kind of straight shooter. And I think that's partially what it takes to survive in the shoes that you wore and on the side of the fence that you were on. Um, so thank you, Melissa. Um, I can't believe you listened to us at all or wanted to join us after I had offended you so badly. Can you, do you remember asking that question?
2: Absolutely. And I have always been very impressed that you guys took it to heart and made a change because obviously, um, a lot of people here agree with, with that, you know, wasn't that we didn't weren't trying didn't consider important, you know, it was very hard to do. And I think that does hold too many people back. There's so many other reasons. It would be hard to say that would be really it. But anyway, I have always um, been really thankful because I've been listening all these years, even though I don't participate in the um, meetings very much anymore. I faithfully listen to you and you, make that point on a somewhat regular basis. So thank you for that.
3: Well,
0: thank you for, uh, for the wake up call, I think is a good way to say that really. I I think about it often, And
1: you know, from my growing up with having my mom divorced twice, my sister divorced once two of those marriages were ended in divorce because of alcohol. You know, I kind of felt a little like, an imposter in a way, thinking that we were going to try to go out there and try to save marriages because I realized that maybe Matt hadn't fallen quite as far as I needed him to fall. I think that we're going to hear some stories that is makes it very understandable, like how staying in a marriage with an alcoholic is really, really difficult and hard.
0: That's right. That's right. We have seven really just very important people in our lives for Sherry and I, seven people on this call who have executed that power of choice, who have made the decision to move on and where you're going to meet them all individually. Barbara, did you want to react to what uh, Melissa, what we were talking about with Melissa? Uh,
4: thanks, Matt and Sherry. Yeah, I, I just wanted to um, let you all know that when I joined, that was one of my big concerns as, as someone who had actually gone through the divorce was, uh, do I even belong here because I'm all of these people are working so hard to to save their marriages and the you 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 made very carefully you were very carefully conscious to to make sure I felt included um and that just is that just is uh, I, I I forget how I'd said it once some sometimes the happy ending is the divorce and it's 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 sometimes hard to realize that because we're trained to, you know, work, 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 work until we fix the problem. And I, I think that that is particularly uh, an issue when you're dealing with addiction. <clears throat> anyway, I, oh, yeah. I, I i always felt, I always felt very, very welcome. Uh, and that problem was my own problem.
0: <laughs> well, it's not unique to you. We definitely, we have a lot of people who there's actually two, Um, kind of scenarios that people are in where we very desperately want them to be included and feel included, but they sometimes don't. And that is the people who have made this conscious decision to move on or the people whose marriage is thriving because they've, they've made it past alcoholism. And both of them feel like, because they're not in the soup anymore, um, they don't necessarily fit. And so that's why this conversation is I think it's so important because you have such an important place in the recovery community to tell an important story of an option that exists beyond just beating your head against the same wall over and over again uh, in hopes of of recovery. So uh, of the relationship. Thank you very much, Barbara. Tara, let's bring you in.
3: Hey, thank you, Matt. Um, You know, it was just about a year ago, I I stumbled across your book and I read it. And when I read that book, I felt like this is, this is going to fix. This is going to help. This is my story. We're going to be that couple that overcomes this awful disease and this hell that I've been going through. And I started, I think I joined echoes early fall. I think it was September of last, of last, last year, 2022. And when I started to hear some of the stories and observing things, and I regularly attended the meetings and met so many fantastic women um, there were a two in particular that made me realize, I need to make this bold move. It was them who gave me the strength and empowerment to to do what I did. It wasn't an easy decision um but I was in this relapse, recovery, not even recovery relapse sobriety cycle for so many years, and I knew like I, there's nothing I can do to help him anymore. And I had to leave to either A, get him sober or to get myself well. And like I said, there were two fantastic ladies that really helped me make that bold move. So I'm grateful for this group. And I wish my story was more like yours and Sherry's, but unfortunately it's not.
0: Well, there are definitely different endings to these stories, but there's a there's a lot of um, strength and and really beauty in the lives that you all have created as well. I think one of the people that was really helpful to you in that time, as you described, I'd like to quote her. Kathy has said to me recently in an email, "I'm no longer waiting on someone else to get well. I have to find my own path to healing." Kathy, can you talk about what it was like to get from the point where your focus is, so much of it is on helping another human being to heal, to recognizing that the work that you need to do needs to be focused on yourself.
5: Yeah, I mean, it. this it was not an easy journey. And I really thought my former husband and I were going to be like you and and Sherry. I really thought we were going to be one of those couples who was going to fight to get to the other side. Um My uh, former spouse almost died of end-stage alcohol addiction two years ago, January. And so he is sober now because his life depends on it and he really doesn't want to die. But he's no longer working any sort of recovery. And, um, you know, that incident was a wake-up call For me, certainly, if not for him, and and it gave me the opportunity to really pause and reflect on, you know, what do I want from a partnership, from a spouse, from a marriage, and was I getting that and, and, and then gave it time, you know, could, you know, because, again, with with your guidance, Matt, learning that that whole first year is really terrible, and it, it takes them a while for their brains to heal you know, I really wanted to see if he could get better, but it finally got to the point where, you know, it's it's the old saying, when when somebody shows you who they are, believe them. And he had become a very different person, um, which surprised me because I have a, a brother who's 30 years in recovery. I have a couple of brothers-in-law. They did not become a different person, although I wasn't married to them, but so maybe they did. I don't know. but. But who my, my former spouse is now, had he been that way when we met, I would never have married him. You know, he is not, he's not the person um, that I would have chosen. And so after, you know, giving him some time and space to, to decide what kind of recovery or life he wanted and was building and what I needed and uh, in a, in a marriage or, or partnership, I just realized those two things were not compatible. I mean, he was really clear that what I needed and wanted, he he wasn't gonna do. He wasn't gonna be that person. Any, he wasn't gonna be my person anymore. So if I wanted to keep going with this sort of like cohabitating, but not a real marriage, I could have, but I want more. You know, I I have said to friends before I got married, I would rather be alone than be in a bad marriage. And somehow I ended up in a bad marriage for a good decade. Um, so it was a hard decision, but I but I finally said, it's, it's time. It, I've given this time. And as Tara said, I can't make him well and I can't make him choose to get well. So it's time for me to take care of myself.
0: Well, I think you make such an important point I think everyone on this call, you met your spouse before the decline started. So you experienced, you had this person that you fell in love with and felt strongly about, and then you witnessed the decline. And because Sherry and I know you, we know you're all strong willed, accomplished, powerful people. And even with that, you know, there was nothing you could do. To change this other human and stop them from the downward slide. And so I I think that's just really important because I think a a lot of the time that people spend when they're in a difficult situation like this is, number one, how can I fix it? And number two, you know, what did I do wrong to allow this to happen? And the answer to both of those is it wasn't about you. Mm -hmm. And that, that's so hard to come to grips with. So one of the things that we say a lot within the Echoes of Recovery group, when people are in this, should I stay or should I go kind of decision point that you can be in for literally years, one of the, one of the things we say is you'll know when you know. And I think I, I probably heard it from one of you, Barbara, I know I've heard you say it lots of times. Um, Jackie, I want to ask you, what was that like it, when, when I say you'll know when you know, what was that point like for you when you, you kind of came to grips with the fact that you needed to get a divorce?
6: Well, I think um, I had kind of been planning and preparing for it for a long time. So that when I finally got to the point, I had put all the pieces in place because even though I was still working on it, uh, things were not looking like they were going to be working out Um, the number of times that he, you know, he would go into rehab, he'd be out for a couple of days, and then it would be a very quick decline. And so, you know, I was kind of all along having two young kids preparing everything, like, and I know that we had talked about it way back when I was still on the calls of like, you're hoping for the best and planning for the worst. And um, the last time that he came back, so, so my ex was coming back from round six or seven of rehab and halfway house and was staying at an apartment close by because I was willing to kind of slowly see how things were going, but from a safe distance. And when I had, um, you know, laid it out for him that this was the last try that I had to do this like I made it clear we set up a safety plan of like okay if you're willing to you know if things happen I'm not saying if you drink that it's over but if you drink like you are not here in this like all these plans and boundaries that I had in place and was very clear and whether he didn't want to believe it or chose not to believe that that was my last straw um the the last time he went, which was, you know, I, I won't go into the details of the getting him out of the house, because that is just a memory that is awful. And as much as it needed to happen is a painful, painful piece to remember. Um, but I knew that it was the last time it didn't feel great knowing that. Um, like, I knew that I had that, that that was the decision. And I immediately was, you know, on the phone with the attorneys. And I said, this is like, it's time to process the paperwork. And I had had everything in place with the separation so that if he fell off, my kids were safe and I had control over everything. Um, But I remember not wanting to get out of bed. Like it, it felt like, you know, it, it was a loss. It was a morning. So it's, it's far better now. It's, it's a beautiful place now, really. Um, and I'm in, in in a healthy relationship with someone new for over a year and we're talking about getting married and, um, ironically they have the same first name, which is just such a weird universe having a sense of humor. Um, but I, I don't believe that my ex would be sober or alive had he stayed, um, So as difficult as that decision was, and I know I've like veered off topic, which I'm really good at, um, he, you know, after, after it was done, like he was in jail, he was in the hospital, his mother passed away and I stood there divorced with him at her funeral. And, you know, it was, it was painful and he went through a really hard time, even while sober being resentful and angry, um, and blaming me that I gave up, which, was hard to hear and I know darn well that's not what I did I fought as hard as I could um but he's in a spot where he like we're almost friendly it's bizarre
0: (laughs) that's funny that's good for
1: the kids and
0: oh yeah it
1: is that is great to hear that you're almost friendly you don't have to be friends but that you can have an amicable relationship with him now because we know your story and that was pretty intense so
0: one of one of the really important things that you just shared was that even after you made that decision you started to put the wheels in motion I'm sure there's some sense of relief but there's it's not a joyous thing to divorce this person and so I, I think I compare that to you know when we as the alcoholic when we make the decision to get sober there is a sense of relief but that's when the hard work starts. And so there's no yeah. immediate, you know, oh, I'm sober now. So life is better. No, life gets worse before it gets better. And and it sounds like from what you're saying and all the nodding heads I'm seeing on my screen that that's that's very much the case. Ginger, what was it like for you to hit that you'll know when you know moment?
7: Um, I went into a period like like Jackie mentioned, I had to grieve for what. I thought I had that was gone. And um, I, I tell people now that I absolutely am still in love with the man I married, but that man doesn't exist anymore and he won't ever be back. And I had to reach a point where I said, I can stay in this unsuccessful marriage that had once been really, really good um or i i can get i can keep watching him kill himself or i can get busy living and i decided it was time to get busy living but wow. there's definitely a grieving process i grieved the, the entire year of our separation because the state i live in is pretty draconian when it when you decide to divorce you that they want you to be sure so they make you wait quite a while and um and that whole year was just Full of self-reflection and some guilt, and beating myself up, and grieving, and and feeling very um, resentful when I see happy couples whose marriages are thriving, and just be like, just get out of my face with that. I don't want to see it. And um, but it's it's a grieving process.
0: Do I remember correctly, Ginger? I remember a story of a picture on your refrigerator of your husband when he was young and healthy. And, and part of the story was that's how you want to remember him. And so that's not a sad picture for you. That's a that's a vibrant picture, but still part of the mourning process.
7: Yeah, but but you're right. Well, I think that was that was a pre-healing moment when I was I was trying to pay respects to um, the man that he once was. And I, I do want to remember him like that because the, what I, what I see now in him is a shell of that once brilliant man. And, um, I would never say that to him. So in a way, I guess I kind of am by saying it here, but, um, it's just, it's unfortunate. It's sad and unfortunate, but yeah. I'm very happy. I'm happier than I've been in my life. It's just a process. It's a healing process.
0: Well, and it's a process that you can go through no matter where you are in your family cycle. And I want to make this point because it occurred to me while I'm, I i actually didn't think of this before we started recording, but it occurred to me while I was looking at all of your wonderful faces that we are pretty equally represented on this call between people whose children were grown when they made this move and got a divorce, people on this call who don't have children, and people on this call who have young children. And so I think that's a really important point because I know a lot of people get stuck with the idea of, I mean, a lot of people get stuck with the idea of, I just have to wait till they're out of the house. I just have to wait till they go to college, and then I can divorce this person. Julie, you are one of the people who your beautiful young daughter um, is is still young. And and so can you talk about that you'll know when you know moment, given that you have a young daughter, and that was a major consideration for you?
8: Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, And I think, <clears throat> excuse me, for me, I think this decision's, you know, there is kind of like a you know when you know moment, but I, I think it also occurred in stages for me. And in my situation, we had a, uh, we had a kind of a reversal of roles in that um, my co-parent was a stay-at-home parent, um, not as many stay-at-home dads as there are moms out there, I think, in the uh, American community. Um, so that was sort of a significant um, factor that made me have to move a little faster than other situations, I think. <clears throat> Excuse me. But once we found out, I didn't know what was going on. And once there was a diagnosis of what was going on, I was like, oh, crap. And I, you know, I started doing my research and joining programs and I started understanding what was going on. And of course, immediately to me, there, you know, there's a safety issue here. Like, can I leave my, at the time, my daughter was two. I mean, so she was a toddler. There's no like, can't leave her. You can't leave a two-year-old alone. You can't. So it's like, can I leave? Can I go to work? Can I physically go to work and leave her with this person who may or may not, you know, like what's going on? Like, I don't know what's happening when I'm at work. So that was really um, challenging. And so I think I got to a point where, and it was only, I don't know, maybe six months after I understood the diagnosis of. Um, in this case, it was a um, alcohol-induced hepatitis, so a the severe inflammation of the liver, which um, led to understanding what was going on. But then I think I got to the question where I was like, can I live, do I want to live with this or do I not want to live with this? Or can I live with this and can I not live with this? And of course, originally I'm like, I'm going to try to live with this because my, my, probably my strongest and weakest personality trait is perseverance. And I will persevere like Like that's, that's it. And it's trained into me. I'm in the military. So it's, it's kind of trained into me as well. And I'm like, I'm gonna persevere. Um, So I, I really feel like I wanted to try to live with it. And I was, you know, boundaries and all the tools that you have to do to live with it. But very quickly, those just didn't work because I just like, number one, I had to know if my daughter was safe. And that was a question. Sometimes I would come home from work and she had been put down for a nap and someone else had gone down for a, um, you know, an alcohol induced nap. And I would come home after four, to 30 and she's up and still in her crib, but he's passed out in the, you know, the guest bedroom. And I'm like, this is, this isn't okay. Like, I can't, that's, I can't come home to that. Like what I couldn't travel for um, travel I needed to do. I couldn't stay overnight anywhere. I'm like, this is, you know, how can I do my job? So, so there was a, you know, serious issue there that I had to, you know, that required a little bit of immediacy. So, you know, I was like, I can't live with this. I'm trying, but I can't like, I, there's no, there are no procedures or anything. There's no processes I can put in place in this situation that is going to resolve this question of safety. So after that, so I knew that, so that was kind of a moment for me. I know I cannot live like this. I can't live with this. I wish I could, but I can't like, it's not a nice enough disease in this particular person, the way it made him that I could live with it. So then the question was, what do I do from here? Um, how long do I wait to see if, if it'll improve on their end? Like, cause I felt like I owed it to them to give a waiting process. Like I know, and I knew from you guys, I knew from other, um, programs, it takes a long time. I, I understood that. And I wanted to honor that. So I, I was, and I told him, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to give you the gift of time. Like, but you got to give me some really hard work. I've got to see it. And I tried to give as much time as I could, but there were still several other incidents of, you know, coming home like this. And I was like, Ugh. And so my hands were kind of tied. And that's kind of when I knew um, the next step, I guess. And you know, when you know, is that I had to set the, like the boundary, like, and when I set the boundary condition where, I, um, you know, we had an emergency room issue where he had to go to an emergency room where he had overdosed on NyQuil. Um, and, you know, that was, it was during the work week. You know, I had to, st- I had to stop and take emergency leave, which was fine to be home with my child. And that was fine. But then I'm like, oh, great. Now I don't know. <laughs> you can take a breathalyzer for alcohol, but what do you do for an overdose on medicine? Like I can't account for that with any sort of testing. So and now I'm just permanently teleworking, which isn't really, you know, it's a two-year-old. It's not like you can really, you know, on the phone with a high-ranking official and there's a kid who needs a diaper change. It doesn't really work. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, I got to the point where I said, I, I'm not doing this anymore. Like this, this was the last time. And And I knew that's, that was a point, like, you know, when, you know, I knew that this was the last time, like I knew I had hit rock bottom. Like I'm not, And I said, I'm not doing this anymore. We'll not do it again. So that was my kind of moment of truth. Like, I I knew that I couldn't put my kid through that anymore. And I knew that I wasn't going through it anymore. And I told him, like, this was it. And oh, I agree. Of course, I totally agree. I'm there too. This is my rock bottom too, Um, which I'd heard several times. I don't mean to laugh, but it, yeah. And then not a week and a half later after the emergency room incident, you know, it happened again. And that's when I was like, yep, I put that boundary in place. And I said, Okay. executing the boundary. We're going to have to separate. We're separating. And that was, a like Jackie said, it was a, that was a difficult day, tough scenario. I had, um, I was um, instant messaging on my my work computer with a colleague who I think was pretty worried about my safety. I think they were ready to send out, you know, domestic and military police if they had to, but um, yeah, so, but that was a difficult day. And luckily he, he moved to a property that we had um about eight, or eight hours away from where we're living at that time. And he stayed there for about a month and a half before he returned um, to live, you know, separately. And and then I was, and I had read, you know, I'd listened to everything and I'm like, maybe there's maybe we just need to separate and we can work on reconciliation. There's you know process here for resentment processing. And again, I was, you know, hoping to see some work and all that stuff. And it just never material there was no work. There was no um, you know, I just you know I kept getting consistently treated poorly and it's like, yeah, I I can't, I'm not gonna live like that. So that was sort of the the stages of several moments of this is this has to happen and then this, this, this. It was
0: it was pretty clear. Yeah, clear, but definitely not easy. I, I'm glad you mentioned your military training. One of the things that we have all benefited from in the Echoes of Recovery Group is when you talk about communication post-divorce with your ex-husband because you are co-parenting, you have a whole standard operating procedures for that, that you've shared with us. And we all very much appreciate your military background for sharing that with us. Jackie, did you want to react to that?
6: Yeah, I just, I just wanted to chime in, uh, you know, Julie, speaking about the decision of the safety of the kids, because I have to imagine, you know, that for anybody who's in that position right now, trying to make that choice, that there's a number of concerns with that. I know that there's you know, there's a piece where there's certainly judgment from others, right? For those who are staying and having their kids there of how could you stay there and put your kids through this more? Like, what are you allowing them to be around? So it's that like, you get the judgment of how do you stay? And then you also get the judgment of how do you be. Um, but, you know, there's that piece of what am I allowing my kids to see? What are they seeing of what a healthy relationship looks like? What are they seeing of how, their mother is allowing themselves to be treated or what they're witnessing with their parent who's, who's actively drinking. And then, you know, the last piece of it is, I know that some cases when there's divorce, a judge might not allow full custody to the one parent who's sober. So some people may stay because they think at least if I'm here, I have some false sense of control that I'm in the house with the kids. Whereas I have friends who are divorced from alcoholics and they have in the agreement, I won't drink while I have the kids, but you're still giving your kids to go to that other home for every other weekend. And that's terrifying. So I just, you know, I wanted to share that piece in the process. I was lucky, but I'm sure that those who are struggling with that decision, that all those things are at play.
0: So that's something you weigh, but it's still the right decision that you made. Um, and I think I think that's really important because now we've heard from both of our participants on the call with young children at the time of the divorce. And it, it's it, I, I mean, we've heard it so many times from other people that they wish they had made the decision sooner and not let the, the, this kind of bondage of the kids aren't old enough yet, um, keep them in that bad situation. Kathy, you're one of the people on the call whose children were adults when you, when you went through with the divorce, but you still felt pressure that your daughter, um, would, I I don't want to put words in your mouth. You were afraid of your daughter's reaction when you divorced and what would happen there. Can you talk a little bit about that?
5: Yeah. So, um, So I I was one of those who, you know, stayed for the kids, so to speak, and I I regret that decision. Um, I had thought about leaving for eight years before his hospitalization, and um, you know, my daughter is definitely, if you look up adult child of an alcoholic, like she is the classic signs across the board. Um, When John was hospitalized, you know, she had talked about well, I'll drop out of my PhD program and go to nursing school so I can help take care of them. And, um, and I said, absolutely not. So, um, so that, and, and both of them struggle with anxiety and depression and pretty significantly, and it may have nothing to do with that, but it's hard for me to not wonder about that. um, I think they're both still in denial about how much his pattern impacted them. And I, I don't know that we'll know for a while, but the other thing I wanted to circle back with, cause I know we talk often here um, in echoes about you'll know when you know, and I, I am not one of those who had that moment. And so I want to share a different perspective just in case there's other listeners out in, in um, with a similar situation, you know, my husband, Ex-husband was not a screamer. He was not, you know, he didn't do any of those things. And so I was the frog in the pot of water. Like it was a little bit worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse and a little bit worse over 10 years until it was terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the hospitalization was a wake-up call, but I didn't necessarily, I, I wanted him to get better. I wanted us to get better. And I remember talking to a friend at one point saying like, is this enough, to, Is you know, in any given point, is this enough to leave over? And she said, I think you could ask yourself a different question. Is this the life I want for my life moving forward? So that was the, the first piece of it question that I lived within. But then I also had been feeling very frustrated by the time he had to quit. I had given it 10 years. Ten full years. And and then you're telling me, Matt, which I got mad at you when you said it, oh, it's going to be a good year. For, you know, it's like the first year is terrible. And I'm sitting there going, I'm done waiting. I want to see real progress. Um, so for me, what was helpful, Is to look out, whether it's three months or a year, you know, every listener gets to decide what that is. But for me, I said, do I want to be in, am I willing to be in the same place a year from now? And am I okay if this is where we're at? And so that I said, no. And so I gave him a whole other year. And when a year later, he was still in that very, um, uh, sober, but not well place that's when I I made the decision that it is I have given this enough time um so I just share that just because some people I wish I had that lightning moment that you know one really hard thing where I was like I'm done it it wasn't like that for me and so I wanted to give folks another way of thinking about because so many of us are stuck in that should I stay should I go decision for so long
0: yeah, absolutely. I, I remember I remember you um, talking about what you wanted the next chapter in your life to look like and you wanted him to come along, but if he wasn't able, and I remember you took a vacation and you, you took a solo vacation, maybe for the first time and you had a really glorious time and you shared, I wish he was here, but if he can't do it, I got to keep going. And that's that's such a powerful and important message. Melissa, did you want to respond to that?
2: I just wanted to um, jump on to Kathy's thing about the fro- frog in the boiling water because you know that is a very common and very fitting analogy, I think. And it the reverse is also true because when I got divorced, not just separated, but divorced, and the financial hammer had fallen, and all my fears about You know, being left bereft and having been a housewife all those years and four kids and what would I do? Blah, blah, blah. It was all over. It was like someone turned the fire off. And it took a long time for the water to stop boiling and stop being hot and stop being uncomfortable and to just be normal. And then finally, where I am now, it is okay. I am not in the boiling water. And I didn't realize as it was turning down, but definitely a year later, two years later. Um, In my case now, three years later, it's, it's so great not to have boiling water happening.
0: Oh, absolutely. One of the things that I remember you talking about, Melissa, and I'm hoping you can share with our listeners, was one of your fears when you made this decision to separate and divorce was that he would get sober after the divorce and he would have this wonderful rest of his life and you would miss out on the good side of him. Can you talk about how you've reconciled that over the last three years?
2: Well, he's been very helpful in helping me get over it because he hasn't been that great up until, I mean, he's only had a three window of sobriety at any given moment. So now it's kind of kicking in because he's pulled himself back from the financial brink, which, okay, I guess that's what it took. You know, you can lose your family, but you're not willing to completely devastate your financial position and live under a bridge. I see where your line is, but- since I have two kids still in college, I'm thankful that he at least stopped then. And he bought a house about a mile from my our old house where I live still. And we're friendly because it works better for my. I mean, basically, uh, we have to keep him happy and engaged because he's still very erratic in certain ways, very impulsive, and it's very within his capability to say, "That's it. She never calls me back. I'm not paying for college." What? You know, so everyone jollies him along to keep him happy until the last one who's just finishing her freshman year is out. Um, my two older kids who are not financially dependent are way less interested. And he's kidding himself. I think that he believes these younger kids have, you know, think he's fine. He's never made any uh Done resentment processing with them or me. And he just wants to pretend like it never happened. I just don't think he's going to get away with that forever. So, you know, I am happy for him that he's not sitting on the couch drinking day after day. Um, I'm I'm thankful, you know, he's not a bad person. I'm thankfully didn't completely torch his political, his uh professional life and his ability to earn. But um, you know life is long and this could be just another, I mean, honestly, I hope that he gets well. It would be better for everyone, including him, if he would get well. Um, but I did manage to save, and for the people that are wondering about staying until their kids leave, I ended up leaving, asking for the separation because my state doesn't actually divorce because our state doesn't have legal separation. When my, last, my first kid, they're all two years apart too, the first kid was graduating from high school, And there was a horrible incident involving arrest, overnight in jail, infidelity, blah, blah, blah. And I just finally thought, I cannot let my last three kids remember their home life like this. This is, you know, how they think they grew up. They don't remember the first 10 to 12 years that were fine and happy and pretty good, right? That's how I have so many kids, because it was better back in the day. So I just thought, I've got to save my other kids from having this be what they live through. And I'm really, let's say he gets sober and even gets healthy and is happy forever. Okay, fine. But we missed the last seven years of hell. And I'm really thankful that my kids, you know, saw me stand up and get up and, and think, because three of them are girls. And I just don't want them to think you have, you're stuck. You know, you don't have to be that stuck. You can. And, you know, I don't plan to remarry. It wasn't about finding another person that was better. It was all about stopping this feeling of powerless. uh, Well, you know what it is, you know, you just can't keep living like that. You're watching someone destroy himself, constantly tell you, I might get sober, but it won't be for you. I mean, that, that makes it easier to leave right there, right? Go ahead. But I've also heard since then that what happened to me is pretty typical. When we got separated, he, or I threatened him, if you don't get sober, I'll leave, which I never had said before, they don't get sober. You may leave, but they spend another year, two years, whatever in the, in the tank, because they,
3: I don't know, they don't know how to
2: process sad feelings and they're sad that their family's gotten destroyed. So it wasn't enough to make him quit. So all that to say, you know, I, I don't think he's ever going to get well enough to have a healthy relationship with another person. So, I hope that he doesn't drag another person, another woman down, certainly not with kids or anything like that. I think he maybe is honest enough at least to realize that would be a bad idea. But that's, you know, I'm I'm still thankful that I I did what I did. Um I found a job that was able to um support myself and keep our house until my last kid gets out of college and um yeah I'm so impressed that there's all the rest of you six that have had to cross that same bridge because in the echoes group that is one reason I stopped coming I just felt like I wanted to tell these women come on can't you see what's happening you know and that's Doesn't work, and that's not why he would ever leave. And they just have to live through it until they realize that's, you know, either he's going to get better or he's not. But thank you for, you know, all being on this call because I feel. I mean, sometimes I do wonder. I don't know if you guys ever have any. I wouldn't say regrets, but I just wish it could be different. I I look at him and I think you seem so normal. Why couldn't you be like this when you're married? You know why? How could I? I, i'm glad my kids get to know you like this but where were you the last five years you know
0: well you made such an important point um kids are so intuitive i know when i uh when i was still actively drinking i thought we were doing such a good job of hiding the chaos and trauma from the kids because we aren't only argued late at night and we argued in whisper fight mode and i didn't realize how much the kids were picking up on i was Apparently I was too alcoholic to realize that, but you talk about the flip side of that. It is so important for the kids to have at least one stable parent and to see that stable parent be strong and defend not only herself, but also defend the kids and the action that you took, you know, the, the fear is always, well, I don't want to break up the family while they're still young because that has negative consequences but perhaps the bigger negative consequence is them seeing one of their parents get walked all over and not stand up for herself because that's a pattern that could potentially be repeated so everyone on this call has been so strong and the impression that you leave on kids as a result is really really impressive ginger what, can you follow up on that what what are your thoughts
7: um so one of the 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 things you have to consider so you've got the choice when your kids are small and you I I am one of the ones who wishes I could have I did not have the ability to leave when they were younger I wish I did I just couldn't see how I could do it and the his addiction did not become really to the extreme level of problematic until they were older anyway I wish I could have figured it out earlier that we were heading in that direction, but one of the things about leaving when your kids are basically grown and adults is that those kids now get to make their own decisions, and I face a lot of, I receive phone calls and texts from my ex's brother, mother, family, or the kids coming to see him, or the kids blah, 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 and I, I am not going to pressure them one way or the other. I'm not going to tell them not to see him, but my word to my children as adults, they are 30, 27 and 24 is make sure your decisions that you make now leave you with no regrets in the future. If you're sure that the decision you're making about your relationship now is not one that you're going to regret later, then you do you, you do what feels right for you. And I've, I really wanted to maintain a close relationship with my ex's family because personally, my parents have been gone for two decades and, and I don't have, his mother's been more like a mother to me. Um, But I've, I've come to realize that that's just not something that is going to work. Um, I've received both the worst insult and the greatest compliment in the past two weeks um, the worst insult was his mother telling me not a single one of us lifted a finger to help him. I, I that was the worst, worst insult. And it's got to hurt. The biggest compliment was my therapist, as we're wrapping up since I'm moving out of state, telling me on my recent session what a joy it has been to see somebody do the work. And so I take that. And I put the mother in law statement to the side and decide I get to set that boundary. If she will not accept the stories my children tell her about what they went through, then she is putting their relationship in peril. And I don't get to make that decision for them because they are adults. So that's the flip side of it. If you wait and leave once they're older, then they get to practice setting healthy boundaries and decide what their boundaries are.
0: Well, that is really telling those two comments, those two completely divergent comments. Sherry and I witnessed how hard you worked. Your husband was among several on this call that had serious, serious medical complications. It wasn't just drinking and becoming obnoxious. He he was going down a very severe medical path. And we know how hard you worked to try to help him get on the right path and then now I couldn't agree more with the therapist. It's been such a joy to watch you turn your life around into such a positive direction. Barbara, your husband also had very, very serious medical complications um, to the point where he lived the last couple of years of his life with half of your liver inside of him. Can you talk That's about true. the medical side of it and what what it's like to make the, all the decisions you had to make um, when someone is so sick,
4: um, yes, that's right. Uh, so, um, his first hospitalization was in um, 2015, and this was for something like alcoholic hepatitis, uh, end-stage liver disease. And what's what's interesting is when I look back on that, I I it's a little bit unbelievable how much I always thought everything was fixed. Okay. So the hospitalization fixed everything. Like we had the problem on the table. We knew what it was and he was going to address it. Okay. So here we are. We're going to go on with the rest of our lives. Um, Within a couple of years, he had a really epic, uh, esophageal varices rupture which turned into this my my joke is it's like the elevator doors opening in the shining i mean he the 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 blood volume of blood being vomited by him was was epic and he ended up back in the hospital um and that was you know i i it was really hard for me to figure out that he was continually drinking through this whole period where he was supposed to be recovered um Gradually, what ended up happening, I know. I know Kathy's talking about um, the brain damage that that her uh, her husband, uh, ex-husband, incurred. Um, that that was part of the process with with Todd. Is watching him just he he was a, a an incredibly bright bright person when I first met him. I know a lot of us have talked about how different these these people become as part of this illness, and all I could think is. If I can do this, if I can just get to this point, this this next point, he'll come back. So he he, he was sick enough to um, by October of 2017, we realized that he needed a liver transplant, and that process is a lengthy process. Even um, even with me as a willing donor, uh, he had to he had to go through substance abuse counseling because he was actively using then. Um, so by November of 2018, I I. Uh, gave part of my liver to him and there was a period there was a very blissful period of about three months where things seemed to go really well and I, I looking back it took me it took me getting involved with echoes to realize that probably within two or three months of that surgery he'd begun drinking again um and the uh There were a lot of there were a lot of things that happened between the that um, that surgery in, in 2018 and then the divorce right right, right just about two years later. Um, and my everybody has talked about their, this is this is when you know moment. <clears throat> there was just a point where I'd found I'd found yet another bottle of of vodka in exactly where the spot I was looking for it. And I just it it, it clicked. And I, I had heard from so many people, you'll know, you'll know when you'll you know when you'll know. And I and I I that made me angry. I was like, how do I know when it's time to leave? And you just it really is. There's almost like a phase change that happens when you've when you've just you can't do it for another second. You 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 have that same sick feeling every time you you have this discovery that you've been lied to. And it's just it's excruciating so i i was able to to make that to make that decision even though even though through the whole time i I feel like i was almost two people going through this process i had actually consulted a lawyer this whole time i'm still surprised now that we didn't that we didn't make it work and i i I, and i'm trying to figure out who these two people are and when are they going to meet you know (laughs) um I, I was sure we would get through this even while I was talking to a lawyer. I had consulted with a lawyer before I actually before I actually divorced him, even, even though I was sure we were going to stay together. Like it's it's this this weird kind of schizophrenia. And the thing that I would want to let folks know is we as partners are are suffering a form of uh, an illness of our of our own in 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 this association with alcoholics and in trying to trying to fix the situation. I, I feel like I spent a lot of time very sick and I feel like I'm I'm coming out of that now. There is a lot of guilt because he did die in September. And it's not something that I take lightly that uh, And people you know I, I have believe me, I have lots of people who've told me, that's ridiculous. How on earth did you feel guilty? You gave me you gave him a liver. What, you know, this is on him. I, I had read somewhere once that it's a mistake to think that once you've saved a life, that that person owes you something. and and the the comment was once you've saved a life, you are obligated to that person to keep keep an eye on them. And I and I I, I kept that to heart. So anyway, this is just kind of a, a long roundabout way to saying that the divorce, I don't regret it but i do i do amazingly have have guilt that i'm still working through and i think i'm i'm on a process of getting better myself and this is something that i have to i have to acknowledge and respect that i've been i've been unwell for a long time
0: well and and for very very good justifiable understandable reason understandable by anyone who has gone through this to any degree i think This is one of the most frustrating parts for all of us, for outsiders who don't recognize the level of absolute trauma and stress and nervous system dysregulation and pain that the loved ones go through, suffering right alongside, in many cases, suffering, I I would argue, even to a, a larger degree. And the, you know, I would certainly I would never be anyone to say you gave him a, you know, you gave him a liver. What more could you do? Get over yourself because the grieving process, this is still someone that you loved enough to marry. So no matter how it turned out, it's painful and it's awful. And, and so I love that you acknowledge the fact that you're healing and that, that is the the process that you are working through now. Thank you so much for sharing that. That's so painful. Kathy. Um, I want to ask you, as we talk about the healing and the recovery and the, the getting better on your side for you, for the, the spouses who have made the, the choice to move on, can you talk a little bit about the process of replacing connections, finding friends, finding new activities? Um, has that been part of your healing process?
5: Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't necessarily... Recommend for everyone getting a divorce and changing states and new jobs. <laughs> um, that's that's three major uh, things. But for me, it's what I needed. I need. I, there were too many reminders of our old life, and um, so changing states and and jobs and all of that gave me the opportunity to have a little bit of a clean slate. It's not like nobody here knows anything about my story, but I get to choose how much of that I want. I want to keep talking about it. Um, and you know, for so many people who think, Oh, I can't start all over. or It's hard to make friends later in life or what have you. I haven't found that to be hard at all. Now, granted, I am an extrovert, but part of it is you just have to try a bunch of things and join groups. Um, but I've only lived here for less than five months. And I mean, I have a good handful of very good friends already. People I can regularly call or reach out or um, message to, hey, this looks cool. You want to go try this kind of thing. So it's just a great reminder that you can build a new great life ahead of you. And as Barbara and Ginger and, and Tara and some of the others have said, there is a grieving process. So I'm doing both of those things at the same time. I'm building my new life. I'm making sure I have things in my week that I look forward to. And I also have moments of profound grief and loss. And I'm not done with that process. Um, I, I, I think the biggest thing that I struggle with is I still keep holding two versions of my husband in my head the one I fell in love with the man I still love and the man who he is today. And I have to keep reminding myself, he's not, he's not the guy I married anymore. And that's been probably the biggest thing I've been working through in terms of the grief, but having things to look forward to also has been helping to, to ease
4: that process.
0: Absolutely. I know one of the things that you've done that I know everyone on this call has done is you've made connections through letting your story out and being honest about it. And then people reciprocate with, let me tell you my story, and an immediate bond forms. And that's that's such a beautiful thing. Tara, you are the most newly divorced on this call. I don't mean to call you out by saying that, but My question that I want us to address is about nervous system dysregulation. When you are living in an active alcoholic situation, you are in fight or flight mode all the time. You are on pins and needles and you don't know what to expect. You don't know what level of intoxication you're going to be dealing with or who's going to walk through the door. And when you separate from that, physically separate from that, there you know, is a process to coming back down from it. You don't just immediately, you're relaxed and calm and everything's great. So can you talk a little bit about what that has been like for you since it's just so recent that you've been going through it? Are you starting to relax? Is your nervous system coming back in line? How has that been?
3: Um, Thanks, Matt. Um, Yes and no. Um, My divorce was final at the end of February and I left in... October so I feel like recently um, the grief is hitting me really hard the past two weeks I have I was crying to my mom in a plate of food at the dinner table saying how much I missed my the person I married and he was very like Kathy said very different I, I keep remembering that former person and um even though I moved out of the house, I technically still own this home with him until he settles up payment. I do believe he's actively drinking. I'm almost almost 100% positive he is. When I did leave, um, he was on a binge like I had never seen. Um, And uh, like so many other folks have expressed, I felt like I was watching a slow suicide and I had to do something. I was almost an accomplice to this and um he wasn't the person i married he was a shell of himself and i'd look into his eyes and he wasn't there anymore it was a stranger living among me there was a lot of things i found on his phone some infidelity this this was going on for a couple years so um i had this ring app on my phone i'm kind of embarrassed to even say tell you folks this i almost feel like i was a stalker um but yeah, I, I still would look at the Ring app because I'm like, OK, there was a huge flood down in Florida. Is my house OK? Because I, I technically still own that house until he pays me. So I have a vested interest in this. My life's in shambles. I can't even buy a house right now. I'm still waiting for my money. It, it's just been, um, yeah, very chaotic. And I, I see people coming and going. I see this lifestyle and I'm, there's parts where I'm angry. I'm like, I should be the one living in that house. I'm the one with the job down there. He's not, he's not employed anymore. He's lost his job. He lost his job in March. I think he has a year severance um, because he was a brilliant man and he did some amazing things. So um, I think his company, I don't think his company knows, or if they know they're, they're paying him. So there's stuff I'm seeing. And when I'm back up north in Massachusetts, I'm grieving the life we had. We had a beautiful life together for, gosh, the first 12, 13 years of our marriage. I I didn't want anything but to just to take care of a man, my husband, and we cooked together. We had date night. We sat by the fire. We did yard work together. We were like a team. We were lockstep. So I think when I'm up north, this grief hits me more because of we were a couple and I see all these families and couples and it's much more family oriented up North, whereas in South Florida, it's a lot more singles. And so it hits me in waves. And um, I have since deleted the ring app. I got a lot of good advice and that's been healthy for me, but it's been a process. I miss him. I worry about him. I wish just get better. I worry he's gonna fall into a, a trap uh, there's times where I don't know if he's going to live. I mean, he drinks hard liquor every day and it, it's um, it, it's just, it's tough, but I knew too. Also, you know, and you know, and it wasn't the, it was a slow progression for me with him. And um, I could have left a long time ago. I don't have kids and I have a good job and I'm okay financially, but I stayed because I still wanted to take care of him. So there's, I'm talking to the, to the folks that don't have children and could quickly leave and make a new life. It's still hard. It hits us in different ways because I felt responsible. I took my vows seriously. I took care of him and I couldn't take care of him anymore and help him. Um, And when I realized last summer, when I was in Maine again in the summer alone because he couldn't travel. He was so, his anxiety was through the roof at this point. He couldn't go anywhere. He's almost an agoraphobic at this point. Um, He has liquor delivered to the house. Like, I don't think he leaves very often. And I I just realized I'm walking alone on the beach. This is the second summer in Maine. And this is a place him and I adored together and would escape to all the time and I can't continue to, I'm in a very lonely marriage. And, um, when I got back in October, it it just realized, I realized I just couldn't continue being alone and just, and I felt like I was in a really deep, dark depression. My doctor saw this depression, but I never really knew it until after I got myself out of that marriage that I, I really looking back, I'm like, wow, you were really not in a good place. You were Many people tell me, we never thought you would leave that marriage. We never thought you would get out of it. You were unsafe. I, I, it's like, I didn't want to see that. I had blinders on because I kept seeing that good man that promised to take care of me and love me for so long. And he was gone. Um, So yeah, it's fresh. It's raw. I'm grieving and it's going to take a long time. And I have triggers with even new folks and friend my sister or relationships or my family. I, I get these like moments of triggers and I've got to work through it based on what he did to me for so many years.
0: Yeah, we, we hear so many people talk about how it's lonelier to stay in the marriage with someone who's actively struggling with addiction than it is to move on and find those connections like what Kathy talked about. And so I'm, I'm glad you highlighted that Tara, Julie. I'm curious because you are among the people on this call that are in that situation with small kids and co-parenting. And so as much as you are doing your best to rebuild and move on, you still have to stay in contact with this person. When we talk about this nervous system, dysregulation and trying to get out of fight or flight, does that constant connection to to the person that you divorced does that does that pull you back into kind of you're up on eggshells egg again kind of place
8: yeah yeah no it does yes so i think every time i see a email come through or something i, I get that instant feeling of anxiety and then i have to implement my strategies or whatever or just get through it and I, that might be the my uh, reaction that i always have that might be something i never grow out of but
0: um, One thing that I'd love it if you mentioned, you are very, you know, we talk about your SOPs, but you are very, um, you know, intentional about how you will communicate. You don't, you don't receive text messages. There's, there's an app that you use to communicate and that's the only way you'll communicate, correct?
8: That's right. Yeah. I had an incident a year ago when, um, I received a lot of, um, negative, um, uh, comments in a text message and it just got me, I was, uh, I felt really unsafe when I saw them because they were really filled with so much rage, and every I realized every time I heard my phone bang, it would cause me to have like almost a panic attack. And I said, "Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm not doing that anymore." And so I, you know, I made a hard communication boundary that I wouldn't um, I wouldn't communicate via text message or phone calls because I was tired of getting the um, voice messages. And I, you know, I said I would only communicate via emails or via um, an application called Our Family Wizard, which has a really great military discount, by the way. But it's a really good co-parenting app. It'll keep, they do, they offer like half off for military families, which is cool for me. Um, But yeah, it's a really great app. It it tracks expenses, so you don't have to, you know, you don't, you just put it up there. You don't have to talk about it, which was good for me. And sometimes I'll still receive text messages, but I just have it on silent. I have the notifications on silent. So I don't have to look at them. if I don't want to. And sometimes I will see that one's in and I'll just say, I'm not looking at that until six o'clock tonight or whatever. And I just make it a point to look at it when I want to. Now we do text or call if there's an emergency. My daughter had an emergency in, in January and I called right away. We texted through that incident. Like clearly there's, you know, there's some things you have to go through here, but, um, but yeah, it is hard. It's hard every time I have to see, um, you know, my co parent to swap the kid. It's, you know, I have to be ready. I have to be ready to interact with them. And usually that's pleasant because our child is right there, but, you know, sometimes, uh, yeah, it's hard sometimes, but, um, just, a but with having a little kid, you know, and co-parenting is hard, like being a single mom, it's, it's really, really challenging, but, um, a couple of things I wanted to say about, um, you know, the divorce and everything. It's like one thing I noticed almost right away when alcoholism left my space was how, how much better the space felt And I um, uh, I had some family members come stay with me almost immediately because I needed needed immediate help with um, childcare. And one thing one of them said was just, this space feels like a thousand percent different without him there. And I'm like, wow, it really does. And my sister, when she came to visit, noticed my dog who's six, almost 17, he's going to be 17 this year, bless his little heart. Um, She was like, wow, he's like a different dog. Like he's totally different. And I was like, Yeah, he is. He's not like running to the corner, freaking out or running into his crate or something. And, um, it was like, kind of like eye opening to see that, like our animal was just noticing how much tension it was. And I could almost tell when I came home from work, what state the house was in by where where my dog was. Um, if he was like carrying a corner, I'm like, oh, we're having a bad day. So this difference in the space was a big difference for me. It just felt better. And then some other things, um, like this week I had a really kind of it's not a crisis week. It was just a funny parenting week. You know, we had a blue crayon go through the washer and dryer. You ever try to get crayon out of a dryer, like, like dried up waxy crayon. Anyway, that happened. Beads spilled everywhere. You know, I had a year analysis. The kid was awful last night. She was up several times. (laughs) But I just realized, um, I realized kind of today that those things would have been a complete crisis before. Like if we were still together, like a crayon going through the dryer would have been a total complete, like all hands-on deck crisis you know and he there would have been freak out I would have been freaking out to calm him down you know probably the you know the dog would have been cowering the corner right like but all oh, as annoying as it was to have to clean a blue crayon out of a you know a dryer which I rent the home so it's like I really better clean it um it, you know everything's fine things are okay like it's all right it, it's a crazy week there's beads everywhere I'm gonna find beads until I die they're probably in the dog's hair I don't even know there's beads all over the house it, but it's okay you know what it's okay it's it's fine. Like, I'm not, like, I'm not in a crisis because there's beads all over the house, but I would have been if I hadn't made that decision. So the space is just, it's healthy, it's positive. It's just better. And it's better for me. It's better for my dog, you know? And, it, and like, talk about an innocent uh, organism that just kind of has that like sense. It's like a, you know, the parakeet in the mine or something. You just like, they just have a sense for it. And then my kid, like, she's happy. And, you know, she was upset that the crayon went through the dryer too, but you know, she didn't freak out. She helped me clean it. You know, like, I was like, we're going to fix this mistake and she's five. And, you know, she got a magic eraser out and helped me clean it, which was great, but it wasn't, you know, we, we got through it without it being a complete and total breakdown. And that's, that's important. That's why I did what I did. And it's, it's better for me. It's better for me and my family.
0: That's one of the things that I can relate to, even from my side of the fence after, you know, years of recovery, when stuff happens. You just deal with it. You don't throw a fit first and drink a bunch of beer to, you know, to lick your wounds about it. You just deal with it. And it's such a better place to be in. I do wanna say really quickly, as you were going through the litany of things that have happened this week, you dropped your analysis in there. And for those that aren't familiar with military, that was, that's just a standard random thing. That wasn't uh you know. Yeah,
6: it
0: was a result of being pulled over by the police or something crazy that you were just dropping through there. Um, yeah, randomly selected. But uh, the details of that story are pretty funny, which we won't share right now. Um, but I'm glad you shared them with us earlier. Um, so let's stay on, you know, the, the, the topic, the, the title of this episode is the power of choice. And we've talked a lot about the pain and struggle and challenge to getting there, but let's talk a little bit more. Julie got us going in that direction about the, how it feels once you're there. Um, I want to go back to you, Tara, just really quickly. Um, in the early stage of divorce, where you are, um, talk about some of the the, the good things, the um, the reassurances that you feel uh, that you made the right decision. Can you?
3: Yes. Um- So the day I left, I packed up my car and it was chaos. I felt like even looking back, I felt like I was in a fog. I, I was the one drinking, even though I wasn't drinking. And I felt like I was in this drunken stupor for just a few weeks. And looking back, I'm like, did that really happen? Did I really get a storage unit? Did I move? Did I just drive 24 hours back to Massachusetts? And when I got home, I felt like, okay, I can sleep again. I can actually sleep. I can sleep. My dark circles are not. I mean, I know these are like physical things, but I immediately noticed physical changes in my body. Um, I started doing Pilates. I, I have more energy now. I can get up and I feel like I can make decisions more clearly and I can think. And I know this sounds really like little tiny things that don't matter, but when you're in the throes of chaos and alcoholism, you take those things for granted. You take waking up in a happy mood. And not and being able to just breathe, I, I couldn't breathe. I felt tight and tense and just always on eggshells. And I mentally can see things better. I can see the world in a happier place. I can I appreciate beauty in nature more. And again, these are little things that I think we all take for granted. But when you're in a situation like we encounter, these things are what makes life matter more. And, um, you know, I also am enjoying time with my family, my, my niece and nephew, they bring joy to my heart. Just like seeing the world through the eyes of a child is so endearing. They're four and two, and they just, they're so happy to see me. And I'm grateful that I can spend more time with them now at this young age. And they're filling my heart with joy. And so focusing on those positive things, um, I think is, it's really been helpful. They're little things, but they mean so much.
0: Oh, they do indeed. They do indeed. Barbara, even with the pain and the grief that you have endured, can you talk about what the power of choice has meant to you and the decision that you've made?
4: Sure, um, and I, I just wanted to um, join in on, on Tara's little little things. the the big thing The big change that occurred in my house um, once I uh, uh, divorced Todd, uh, and I actually, I had to I had to move him out physically because he wasn't capable of actually making that move himself. So it occurred to me very early in, uh, after he was gone that I would stand at the bottom of my stairs. And it would be light at the top of the stairs because before he always was in his bedroom with a door closed, and suddenly there was this light in my house that was never there before. And I, I can't tell you how liberating that was and how how lightening that was. It, you know, not not just in terms of light, but in terms of weight. You know, um, uh, that that made a big difference. But um, a really big thing that's ha- occurred. Um, in the in the process of deciding to make this change and this is this is a lot down to you matt um i worked i worked with you on your blog for for quite a while and and did writing um wrote about my part of the story uh um wrote wrote to prompts wrote wrote to my own my own interests and i've been able to um move that forward Uh, I'm, i'm working right now uh with the, your writing coach, actually, uh, on a on a memoir uh, that I'm really excited about. I feel like this is a really good a really good place for me to be processing this, and I think it's going to be helpful for so many people to to see this process because this is something that I we don't have this. I mean, there aren't there aren't people who are talking about this. there, there aren't books from us. You know, I, I read I read uh, uh, Drinking a Love Story and I read Blackout and those are great. But they're from that perspective that, you know, we, we need to talk about what's what's going on with us. And as uh, uh, is, is a little uh, addendum, um, my mom actually had a big um, life change uh, sort of at a similar time and she has moved in with me. Uh, so Ginger, I'm I'm excited that you're down with your daughter. I think that's, I think that's a great, a great move. And um, this is such a positive point in both of our lives right now. And it just wouldn't, it wouldn't be possible without the the changes that, that we've both gone through. Uh, and there's still light at the top of the stairs, even though she's in the house with me. It's, it's, it's been a, a really, a, a really good transformation.
0: Well, I have to say, I know that this isn't about me at all, but I can't tell you how relieved I was when I found out that you and your mom were going to be living together for a while because um, I just think you deserve each other. You're both such wonderful, beautiful people. That's great. And I can assure you. That uh, when you get that memoir ready to share with the world, our listeners are going to hear about it to the point where they don't want to hear about it anymore. I'm going to talk about it so much. I'm so excited because for those that don't know, Barbara, she's the best writer I know. Um, She's fantastic. And she has published on our Sober and Unashamed blog um, dozens of pieces. And so I hope our listeners will go back and listen and connect further with Barbara's story it's really, truly amazing. Um, uh, Jackie, you talked earlier about how you, uh, are dating now and potentially talking about marriage. Can you talk a little bit about, uh, what that transition from, you know, the hardest period of your life to, to joy coming back into your life, what that's been like?
6: It's been wonderful and unexpected. Um, it did, I, you know, I kind of, at the start of things was just happy to feel safe again and to, like, kind of had resigned myself to, if it's me and my two kiddos, like we're good. Um, and I got COVID and, uh, was bored. So I went on dating apps and, uh, I was swiping away at anyone named Matt except this one goofy ginger guy with a smile that I was like, he just looks so silly. And so I happened to engage in conversation with him and it was like a lovely immediate connection. We went past all the first date kind of stuff where we were immediately just talking about things that mattered and the things we resonated on were incredible. And, you know, just in terms of had I not gone through all the things that I went through with my ex, There are so many things outside of just the work on the, having been married to an alcoholic, but the amount of things that I ended up working on just on me that were sitting there that probably contributed to me being in a less healthy relationship in the first place. I did all this work and my now partner had come out of a marriage and had done all this work. So it was like this beautiful timing. And, you know, someone had mentioned earlier, like talking about, I I think it was Kathy, like talking about what she figuring out what she actually wanted in a partner. And I think younger, I was just so caught up on like the excitement of getting married and starting a family and all these milestones you're supposed to hit and not necessarily looking at the, what I want and deserve. Um, and finding that and finding like, he knows all the stuff. He knows my whole story. He's really brilliant in identifying when there are things that are triggers, but I, I have so many moments of, this is what it was supposed to be like. This is, this is what partnership is. This is what it means to have like a real person on the other side. And sometimes it's unnerving because I'm so used to being, we controlled everything that we could try to control. So starting to relinquish that and trust in somebody else to, to hold me up at times has been, uh, it's been awesome. Um, you know, and I'm, I feel really blessed. It's, uh, And I think it's going to be good for my kid. He's wonderful with my kids and knows what they're coming in with. And he's got his three and uh, it's going to be insane having five children (laughs) between the two of us, but, uh, you know, selling my house that I owned with my ex is they're closing at the end of next month. It's crazy. Um, but it's been good. And my ex is finally at a place where he calls and he's like, I hope that he's doing okay. And he'll ask. And he, I think has a little bit of gratitude he lives down in Florida for this person who is doing the things that he knows he should have done for me and for his kids.
0: Well, you make a point that transcends the relationship that you're in specifically where you've divorced and found somebody else. You talked about how you got stronger independently and this person that you've met got stronger independently, and and now you're in a relationship that works. That is so important. Whether you stay and you try to work it out with the person who is in sobriety and recovery and was once an alcoholic, or you move into a, a new relationship, those individ the, the strength and independence of those individuals is far and above, in, in my opinion, and I think Sherry agrees with me, the most important component of the relationship, that you can lean on each other, but you can also stand up straight on your own. And that, that has to be there, whether you stay or you go. And I'm so, so glad that you brought that point into it, Jackie. That's really great. Before we started recording, Ginger, you said something, and I think it's a really great thing for us to end on today you said uh, just to the group that this is the happiest you've ever been in your life. Um, Can, uh, how, how long has it been that you've been working on this independent path? I know we've known you for the whole time. You were married when we met you, but it's, it's been a couple of years now that you've been divorced. Right. And, and can you talk about how'd you get to the best place in your life?
7: No, I've been, divorce, not quite a year. It'll be a year June 10th or 20th or something like that. And I think it's wonderful that I can't remember the date. Um, But when we were in the worst part of the crisis years, I was completely lonely and, um, you know, started like joining Echoes was one of those steps I took. I formed a women's group in my neighborhood. I got involved with a group at my son's college. He was at a military college and it's a little bit different for the parents when they're in a military school. Um, and I joined echoes and I joined some other support groups and I just kept putting myself out there. I started therapy. Um, those are the things that I did to, to start figuring out who I am and what I want. And, It it occurred to me in therapy that I have never been independent in my life. I married young. I I grew up in a home with addiction. I went to college. I met my ex-husband. We married while I was still in college. So I have never had this moment in time where I get to be unapologetically me, who I want to be, make the choices that are right for me, and, and figure out who I am. And through groups like Echoes and working with my therapist and just getting to know a lot of women um, who haven't dealt with some of the challenges I have, I've been able to define what what does Ginger's life look like? And so I am fully invested in living all the way to the finish line now. It, there's, there's no... I might have my moments of grieving and my moments of sadness, but this is my life and I've only got one.
0: Wow. Wow. I know that we have only discussed the tip of the iceberg in this discussion. There's so much more to all of your stories and maybe we'll have to do this again. I hope that we can, but I think the message you just delivered, Ginger, is a mic drop moment. And we should leave it at that. Thank you all so much for being here. Can't tell you how much we appreciate your contribution to the intoxicated podcast. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources.
1: If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our echoes of recovery
0: group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety,